is the universe fine-tuned for life, and is this evidence for the existence of God? Today I bring on the expert, Alan Hainline. Alan started a Reasonable Faith chapter at the uh, University of Texas in Dallas, uh, and he also has uh, leading a Ratio Christi chapter at Dallas Baptist University, and he leads an apologetics ministry at his church uh, in Rockwell, Texas. He has a bachelor's degree in physics from the University of Texas at Austin, and he's taking classes in bioscience and religion program. He's also contributed to a new book called The Story of the Cosmos in which he writes about the fine-tuning argument for the existence of God. You should get a copy. It's in the description below and has uh, a number of wonderful authors just like Alan. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you do, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, leave us a review, and of course, if you want to watch the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Alan Hainline, be sure to follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a supporter of our ministry. At the $1 level, you can get access to uh, live stream Q&A with me, um, usually every Monday. I'm going to try and do that from now on, uh, and you can ask questions and that sort of thing. You also get access to early released episodes. If you uh, become a supporter at the $5 level, you get all of that, plus you get the bonus segment. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I am excited to introduce my special guest to you. His name is Alan Hainline. Alan, how are you doing today, sir? Doing great, Hayden. Hey, Thanks I, for inviting me on. Yeah, definitely. I'm uh, super excited to have you on. I love talking to, uh, to uh, people who are involved in the uh, scientific endeavor and uh, who are also Christians. It's also, you know, with the, the culture today, you might think that that's a rarity, but I keep finding more and more of, uh, uh, you know, diamonds in the rough, so to speak, like yourself. And so I'm excited to have you on. Um, but uh, for those who may not be familiar with you, who you are, Alan, if I thought, thought it might be useful for you to uh, give a, a brief introduction. Well, like many people that are in this sort of field of defending the faith, I went through my own crisis of faith a number of years ago, had a lot of doubts. And once I really delved into the actual evidence, though, I found that there were really good answers for the questions I had. And more than that, I just found that there seemed to be like an overwhelming amount of evidence that I had never heard of, even though I'd been a Christian since I was young. And just wasn't hearing about some of the various lines of evidence from within the church even. And so I felt led to be involved with it as somewhat of a ministry. Started a group out at UT Dallas about nine years ago, a reasonable faith chapter. And we do some things at our local church as well, Lake Point Church in, in Rockwall. That's, uh, that's really cool. So was there anything specifically, if you can uh, uh, remember, what uh, actually caused the doubts in the first place? Was it an objection? Was it something more emotional or, or uh, you know, unless it's too personal? But uh, what? Yeah, I don't what, mind sharing. Yeah, basically, I had some close friends who we were all really fired up Christians in college, very active in sharing our faith. And a couple of them sort of lost their faith. And it, it really kind of shook me up a bit. It's like, wait a minute, how can these guys lose their faith, and they were claiming, oh, it was just an emotional experience. And so it made me kind of rethink things, hit me at a bit of a dry period where I was too involved in my career and trying to make strides there. And so I think I was a little bit vulnerable. But I think it was all, you know, something that God used for the good, because it led me to, to study more and learn more and, and realize that Christians need to be more intellectually engaged and 
respond to many of the various critiques of Christianity that are out there. Yeah, I think you just touched on uh, something that is at least important to me and I found is important to other apologists involved in the, this sort of endeavor is, uh, you know, there seems to be, at least in some circles, a, 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 a stigma against, uh, you know, more or less kind of embracing doubts. We're told in some circles at least that doubt is sinful and you should just kind of push that aside and, uh, you know, conjure up faith somehow. I don't even, I'm not sure what that even means, but... Uh, yeah, it's just, uh, it seems like, uh, like you said, whenever I had a, a period of doubt myself, it was actually embracing those doubts that led me through to a stronger faith. And uh, in that sense, it seems impossible to me to not say that God actually used my doubts to bring me to a much stronger faith. Uh, so, I, you know, if you're out there and you're struggling and you have doubts, uh, you, I, I would recommend embracing those, doubting your doubts and saying, okay, this is something I'm struggling with. Perhaps there's answers out there, and hopefully somebody uh, like Alan is, is proof that there are answers out there. Um, for centuries, millennia, uh, Christians have struggled with these things. You're not the first one to do so, and there there are answers. So get out. Okay, I'm off my pedestal. Sorry for that. But uh, anyway, I think that's important to point out. Uh, so it's an important message. I'm glad you you mentioned that to the audience because there's probably a lot of people maybe struggling with that and. You shouldn't feel that it's that unusual, and and the the thing you don't want to do is be apathetic and, you know, just blow it off. You want to dig in and get answers. Definitely. Uh, so that's kind of how you came to apologetics. Was um, you know some of your friends had walked away, and that kind of caused you to doubt, and so you dove in. Um, did this whole uh, uh, conflict, supposed conflict between science and faith, did that ever cause any doubts for you? It was part of the, what I struggled with working in a sort of a STEM area, more engineering at the time than science, but you're around a lot of smart people or, you, you know, you, you read books, you see things online. It's like, wait a minute, why, why are all these smart scientists convinced there's no God? Mm -hmm. And it, I think, it, you know, looking back, it bothered me a little bit more than, than it should have because scientists are not really the ones with the best training to even really weigh in on the question of God. They're not philosophically or theologically trained, but but it, it is what I experienced at the time, just kind of knowing that scientists are smart people who think deeply and usually fairly, not always, but, and so that, that made, that gave me pause. So that was a key part of what caused me some conflicts. And in fact, I think the issue that you want to talk to me about today, fine tuning was one of the things that helped me get through that period of doubts, actually. Yeah, definitely. Before we get there, though, the, I think you brought up something interesting there that when you said that uh, you're not. You don't uh, feel like, or you're not sure that scientists are even uh, the correct um, professionals or specialists that should be commenting on, uh, you know, the existence of God, specifically from a scientific uh, point of view. What What makes you say that? I'm curious. Well, science studies nature and God by definition, if He exists, at least the classical conception of God is that he's beyond nature, he's not made of physical stuff. Any evidence for or against God related to science would, by necessity, be pretty indirect. Right. There's no sense in which you should expect to scientifically detect God. You can't ever run an experiment where God is put in a box. Yeah. <laughs> Just, it doesn't, he doesn't, yeah, it's, it's a different category. Would, would you agree with this statement? If God exists, he cannot be proven through the scientific method. 
depends on what you mean by proven. But yeah, basically, I would agree with it. Mm-hmm. If you talk, if you're speaking of proof in any strong sense of the word, obviously mathematically or, proven. Or, yeah, or, nothing could be mathematical. Yeah, so. But mm-hmm. yeah, so the but th- the word proof probably wasn't the best, but demonstrated or something like that. I think that there's very strong evidence from science. You have the kind of evidence you expect, if not, I would argue, more than you would normally necessarily expect. Mm-hmm. More fingerprints or evidence of God uh, from studying science at, at its foundations. Sure. Of course, a lot of science and God don't really overlap at all. I mean, you can do chemical experiments and it has nothing to do with the claims of the Bible or, you know, there's a lot of areas in which they don't intersect. But when you, you start looking at origins, origin of the universe, origin sure. of life, origin of the laws of physics, there seem in those cases to be at least those are the areas that would show some hint of God. And I think they do in spades. So, okay. Okay. Well, let's, uh, uh, let's get into this uh, fine tuning argument. And so, uh, well, I'll just let you lay it out for me. What is the fine tuning argument uh, for the existence of God? All right. Well, maybe we need to start off by defining fine-tuning, I guess, to begin with. So the definition of fine-tuning doesn't really relate to whether it's due to design or not, at least as physicists refer to fine-tuning within the literature of physics. It it just refers to, and it actually can apply to things beyond life as well. Um, If you look at a theory in science and you analyze the parameters and the equations for the theory, if they turn out to, to have to require very precise settings, um, and there's no underlying reason from within the theory that drives them to those values, uh, then that's said to be a form of fine-tuning. And so it turns out, applying that to life, then, that starting in about the 1970s or so, scientists discovered that tiny changes to the fundamental laws of nature, things like the strength of gravity, electromagnetism, the masses of fundamental particles like the electron or the quarks, which make up protons and neutrons, tiny changes in those would have resulted. And this is kind of surprising. You might think, well, why does it matter that much what the mass of an electron is? But it does, at least in ratio to that of a proton, for example, or, or different things like that. And so there's a whole host of these finely tuned parameters that have to be just right for life. And so it begins to look like it's rigged for life. Mm-hmm. Um, because in, if these things were just set at random, then it's incredibly more probable that the universe would have not contained life. Whereas it's not too unexpected, at least on theism, if God exists, that he would want some form of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, because life seems to have some inherent value. I mean, that seems to be somewhat undisputable, I think. Yeah. So kind of the general idea is then that um, in order for life to exist, there are a number of different um, uh, laws of nature whose um, – I don't know how to word that, I guess. But they had to be well, – Well, you, you could say the, the physics, the way the universe is set up, the way that its laws operate – has to be just right for life. And that applies in terms of laws, initial conditions, and the constants within the mathematical equations that describe those laws of nature. Sure. In all three ways, they have to be just right. Most combinations, most ways of thinking about it would have messed things up for the possibility of life. So I guess I'm, one question would be, how do we know that it's even possible that these laws of nature or different combinations 
could have been different in the first place? Well, the, the fundamental laws themselves, as we understand them, for example, say the initial conditions of the universe, uh, in statistical mechanics, we can do the math and say, well, we know we have 10 to the 90th subatomic particles. What are the different ways of arranging them? And we can come up with the fact that, hey, the arrangements that would have led to life or organized structures of any kind are very improbable. Okay. And so it depends on which parameter you're talking about. Now, of course, you can, you can, there's different ways you can run a fine tuning argument. You could look in terms of logical possibilities. I think the, the best way to think about it, though, is within the laws of nature, they define natural ranges. For example, the masses of particles can't go beyond what's known as the Planck mass or the theory breaks down. So if our, in the standard model of physics, we have a certain understanding about a, a range of masses that particles could have. And within that range, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction that permits life. Uh, should that you know, get our attention? Should that mean anything? Are there implications that it's rigged? I think so. I mean, a lot more would be need to be done to really develop that into a full-fledged argument. But mm -hmm. in terms of just giving a nutshell of the kinds of things being claimed, that that would be a synopsis of it. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, some of that was pretty technical and probably went over my head. But I guess uh, just kind of a general, almost philosophical question that I would ask is, um, how do we know that those constants and different uh, um things aren't exactly the way they are because they had to be the way that they are, even if we don't know, you know, I guess I'm asking, how do we know they don't exist as they do by physical necessity or something like that? And that is an important question to answer because if they had no absolute choice, then you can't really say they're finely tuned because the the possible range would be also be narrow. Um, but the thing, I think if you, if you start thinking in terms of is there any reason why an electron couldn't have had more mass or a quark or proton or whatever? It's kind of bizarre to think that there's no possible universe in which it had a different mass. Um, and actually within, if you really get in, I won't get too technical here, but within quantum field theory, there's actually the concept of naturalness and there's quantum corrections and contributions that give us a rough understanding of what we would expect particle masses to be and things of that nature. So there actually are even conferences that physicists hold. These are not, you know, people that necessarily believe in God or not, but they, they hold conferences where they're analyzing, um, have, are the constants even the same throughout this universe? Okay. So, the, the key thing is that the when you get to the, the, the most foundational level of physics, you end up still with a, a quantity such as, say, G, you know, in the gravitational equation. And there's no deeper theory for why that G has to have the value it does. You just have to go and do the experiment to find out what the value is in our universe. Okay. And so it's kind of bizarre to think in terms of, well, did that, you know, in one sense, it, it's not different just because that's the way the universe is. But in terms of like, is it possible that it could have been different? It certainly seems possible. In fact, you'll find very few physicists that would say that all the laws and constants of nature have the values they do because of necessity. At one point, there was a hope that perhaps string theory would do that for us. 
that there would be this underlying law and it forced all these constants of nature to have particular values just by its very nature. Yeah. Even there, you'll see physicists saying things like, even if all these could be explained by some deeper theory, it would still be remarkable that they happen to be those propitious for life. Mm-hmm. So I think it, there would still be a fine tuning problem, even if there was physical necessity, but it would be much harder to evaluate. But in fact, most physicists don't think there's physical necessity. And in fact, in, with regard to string theory, the the current thinking is that oh, there could have been 10 to the 500th different sets of <laughs> values oh, for the constants of nature within string theory. So uh, yeah, there there seems to be a lot of reasons for thinking that these could have been different. In fact, even within the standard model of physics, for example, the strength of the uh, the weak force depends on this um, certain constant that took on its value by sort of a pseudo-random process in the early universe, something called spontaneous symmetry breaking. So there are cases where we, we, we in fact think we know that there was a range of possibilities and the, as the universe unfolded, it had to unfold one way versus another within that range. So we have examples like that as well, where we know there's some selection among a range of possibilities going on in the laws of nature. This is all kind of bizarre to me. I mean, this may be a way too big of a question or too broad of a question, but how do they even know this? How do physicists and, and uh, cosmologists even know these constants? And how do they even know, uh, you know, like what was going, like you just said, what was going on, you know, moments after the Big Bang or, or whatever? How do they know this stuff? Well, it is, it is pretty remarkable the degree to which we live in a universe which is discoverable, which is itself, people like Robin Collins have yeah. argued for a sort of a fine-tuning to enable discoverability, uh, because it turns out that by making certain, that started off more as assumptions about uh, certain aspects of the universe, cosmologists were able to make predictions and then see that, oh, the universe really does look like it was this fairly simple um homogeneous isotropic state early on. And so then we can predict what would happen based on the laws of nuclear fusion, which can then predict that, oh, there was about 75% hydrogen, 25% helium coming out of the Big Bang. And then later stars would make the heavier elements from from those uh, entities and things of that nature. So it, it is pretty amazing. But yeah, the key point is that the the most foundational theories we have allow for a wide range of possibilities. And fine tuning is not just like, um, this is something I got from Luke Barnes, his friend of mine, he's a top cosmologist, but he says, fine tuning is not just like theoretical physics, it is theoretical physics. It's exactly the same application that we use all over the place to understand the universe. If you apply it to analysis of what is required for life, you end up seeing that the universe is finely tuned for life. Well, maybe we can take a, a look at uh, one or more, uh, whatever uh, whatever direction you'd like to take it, but uh, one of these uh, fine-tuned parameters or uh, one of these constants and uh, kind of how we come to know it and how we calculate the odds of it, I, I suppose would be my question. All right. Um, so we could say start off with, say, the, there's four fundamental forces. Um, gravity is one that is obviously really important for like things like star and planet formation and organizing structures within the universe. So let's talk a little bit about that. 
So it doesn't seem unreasonable to assume that gravity could be as strong as the other forces, like the electromagnetic or the nuclear forces. There's a strong and a weak version of that. So here maybe we don't have a, a real precise understanding of the range, but just taking a rough kind of um, estimate like that and say, well, there, for all we know, there, there are a lot of people that work on something called the grand unified field theory, where they hope to eventually unite gravity with the other three forces. And so they, you know, there's a lot of people that think there's a relationship between them. So it's probably not too unreasonable to think that possibly gravity could have been as strong as the strong nuclear force, if not stronger. Uh, but if you just assume it could be as strong as the weaker electromagnetic force, it turns out an increase by one part in 10 billion and all stars would burn out in less than a million years, which would probably be too fast for a rocky planet to cool from its molten state, let alone for life to, to form and get established, especially to the point of a, you know, getting to intelligent life. Um, another example would relate to the particle masses. If you look at the mass of the up and down quark, these are what are what make up protons and neutrons, which obviously are really important. Almost everything we know about is made of protons, neutrons, and electrons. Uh, but we find that only a very small sliver, if you look at like, well, let's vary the up, down core, up, and, up and down quark and the mass of the electron and kind of look in a three-dimensional space at among the range of possible, possible values for the parameters, what's the life-permitting region? And there it turns out to be enormously small, about one part in 10 to the 20th power, which is um, you know, one with 20 zeros after it. Uh, so there's a lot of ways that could have gone wrong and you wouldn't have stable atoms at all anywhere in the universe, or you might've ended up with a universe with just say hydrogen which, you know, chemistry class would have been a lot easier with that. You'd have all of one. But there yeah, I wouldn't have failed, yeah. So, yeah, that, there's a lot of things like that. You can end up with universe that would just be helium, no chemical reactions. Yeah. So certainly it's very rare. Even Stephen Hawking once said something to the effect that um, the laws of physics seem to be optimized to maximize the number of stable nuclei. Yeah. It's phenomenal that we have such a rich, full suite of uh, possible elements that are stable within the universe. Mm -hmm. Not all of them are even needed by life. Some of them are very helpful. If you want to make an iPhone or something, though, so it's it's pretty incredible. Okay, so let's uh, let's get into some of. Well, first of all, how many physicists and cosmologists kind of accept this paradigm that the universe is finely tuned for life? I guess I mean, is it all? Well, you almost have you, know, you can almost never say all about anything, yeah. right? <laughs> um, I mean, even if they don't accept the conclusion among, of among the yeah. among physicists that have studied this in depth, then I would say almost all of them agree that there's at least some level of fine tuning. A few would kind of tend to minimize it, but most of their objections relate more to sort of well, we there might be these other forms of life we haven't you haven't given enough chance for for those or something like that but i think the vast majority of physicists that have really studied this you know they it's pretty irrefutable i, I would refer people for example to luke barnes's very in-depth review article in which he summarizes about a hundred papers i think he may have read another hundred papers uh, as well and in, in coming up with a summary of all the different evidence and believing there's a lot more than I listed there. There's the fine tuning of the cosmological constant. 
system is about one part in 10 to the 90th. The initial conditions of the universe, Roger Penrose has computed and many people have affirmed that that's fine-tuned to about one part in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. So, <laughs> well, let me ask this, talking about, talking about all these crazy numbers. Has anybody, because it doesn't, as far as I can tell, uh, we, we don't just need one of them to be correct or to be the way it is. We need all of them to be the way that they are. Exactly. So is there some grandiest number that they, I mean, you put them all together and, and you come up with one giant, unbelievable number? You can do that, but yeah, I don't, the, really like the fine tuning of the initial conditions, it's so improbable, it sort of swamps the rest. What it doesn't account for is maybe there's some slight possibility of new physics could make it less fine tuned. Um, but yeah, the, the, I think part of the power of the argument is its multifaceted nature. There's so many of these constants that require exquisite levels of fine tuning. Even if we were wrong about, you know, half of them, 90% of them, it seems there would still be enough left that, hey, the universe would turn out to be finely tuned. And yet over the past 40 or 50 years, there's been a little bit of, you know, give and take uh, among the physics for it. But all in all, it seems there's, if anything, more of a trend toward discovering new examples of fine tuning. For example, dark matter turns out to be very important for galaxy formation. Mm -hmm. And so over time, um, it, it, the fine tuning has held up quite well. There's a, I mean, Luke Barnes has come up with an example where it went the other way, though. We used to think something was finely tuned and it turns out, well, not so much so, maybe just a little bit. Yeah. But um, overall, I would say that, yeah, the trend is towards even more firmly establishing the fine tuning. Sure. And I could be thinking of this wrong. This is just something that popped into my head that I thought uh, previously, which was as we learn more about this fine tuning, this seems to be helpful in answering the question, you know, um, if God is a creator or I don't even know how the argument goes, but if God created the universe, why is there so, so uh, much of the universe is just utterly meaningless and it's just this one tiny little planet that actually matters and all this stuff. But as I take in this information from, I mean, that I don't really know what that's supposed to prove anyway, but as I take in this information, <laughs> it seems like the actually the universe in totality needs to be this way even for the, there to be life on this one little planet. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would want to point out is that we don't really know about what life may or may not exist in, you know, distant galaxies and so forth. I don't, I don't think the Bible, we should expect God to necessarily tell us in the Bible if some civilization we would never interact with because it's so far away is also something that he created or... Sure providentially led to come about or however you want to look at it. So um, we really don't know for sure, you know, what the status is in other places. But what we do know, I think fairly reasonably, is that most, if you were just setting things at random, like the masses of these particles or the strength of gravity or whatever, you wouldn't really have ended up with life. It would just have been too improbable that you ended up with life anywhere or even organized structure anywhere in the universe. And so it does, I think, give us evidence for God, fairly strong evidence that mm -hmm. this whole thing was rigged with some intent in mind to bring about life. Yeah. So do you think the search for extraterrestrial life is uh, hopeless, or what do you think? <laughs> not necessarily. I mean, if I were not a theist, I would think it looks pretty improbable based on what I know about the difficulties of origin of life 
we had Dr. James Tour give a talk just Thursday night at UT Dallas. And he's a really renowned chemist who does, you know, synthetic chemistry, builds complex molecules for a living, has some good critiques of naturalistic origin of life. And others like Eugene Koonin, who himself doesn't believe in God, but he he thinks the chance of life emerging anywhere in the universe is at best one in 10 to the 1018th power. <laughs> and he's an atheist. All the, uh, you know, 10 to the 22nd planets that might be out there. Yeah. But he appeals to the multiverse to explain that. Um, so yeah, I think as a theist, though, it's it's more uncertain. Like, okay, God could have, you know, if intervention was necessary to bring out life, and from what I understand, it probably was, then God could have done that, you know. So I really don't have a strong opinion one way or the other about yeah. whether we but this, life. Yeah, this is interesting because it seems like you're saying if God exists, and it makes perfect sense, I just hadn't thought about it in this way, that if God exists, the likelihood of there being life elsewhere would seem to actually increase as opposed to if it had to come about by, um, you know, pure, uh, purely blind physical, um, you know, reactions and different things. I think so, based at least on my understanding yeah. of the difficulties of origin of life. And it's shared by many, even non-believers. There's others that are, of course, more optimistic. They think maybe we're close to getting some breakthrough. But the, the critique often is that the kind of experiments they're doing in origin of life research have too much operator interference. They're not the kind of things that would have happened on the early Earth or sure. some planet in its, you know, form where you have very dilute chemical concentrations and interrupting interference, things like that. So. Yeah, so these fine-tuned uh, parameters and constants and uh, initial conditions, uh, the probability of them happen just seems uh, happening by chance is just overwhelming, but uh, obviously not everybody believes in God in face of these uh, arguments, in face of these uh, fine-tuned parameters. So let's Let's deal with some objections, and if you think of some objections that uh, I don't or that you think are actually better, then we can deal with those too. But uh, the first one is, as you already mentioned, the multiverse. Some people say, well, yeah, there may be one to the however many chances, but given that number of chances, we would eventually have a universe with life, something like that, correct? Right. Yeah, when you're faced with something improbable, there might be a tendency to think, well, maybe we have more chances of getting it right. And so there's certainly a potential for a multiverse theory to make it more probable that life exists. And so there are some theories that other universes could be created similar to our Big Bang, and that we're just one of a vast number. So obviously, if you had enough of them, uh, well, one thing to realize, too, though, is that it's not enough just to have a huge number of universes. Uh, for example, if if I told you that I'm, you know, trying to win the lottery, I bought a million tickets. Yeah. And I told you that I chose my favorite number for all one million. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't helped my chances. So obviously, you, you don't just need a large number, but you need to be able to vary the constants in these different universes. So you you are you need some kind of universe generating mechanism. Yeah. It would need itself avoid the requirement to be finely tuned, which so far ones like eternal inflation seem to suffer from that problem. They, they need special conditions to get the right kind of inflation to produce other universes. Um, and so uh, you would also need these mechanisms for varying the laws in widely varying ways in these other universes. So you need to start putting together a number of very theoretical, hypothetical 
uh, entities in order to try to explain away the fine tuning in, in our universe. Yeah. But I think the biggest problem is if you look at at those multiverse theories and take them seriously and say, well, what would you expect? What would you predict if a certain multiverse theory was true? And then it, our universe doesn't seem to be typical among those life permitting universes within that multiverse theory. That's the biggest problem I see. And the reason I, I say that, it's not so much me, like I'm some great expert, but just looking at people, for example, like Roger Penrose, a really top physicist in the UK, and he says the multiverse is worse than useless in explaining <laughs> fine-tuning of the initial conditions because the fine-tuning is so much more than would be necessary. Like if you had different ways of bringing about a life-permitting universe, the vast majority would give you a tiny universe um, maybe with just one solar system. And that would be a lot easier to fine tune um, and it, in multiple ways than what we experience. So th there's a number of reasons for thinking that these multiverse theories are, are not a good, they, they may or may not be other universes, but even if there are so far, none of them seems to do a good job at explaining uh, the multi explain the fine tuning in a, a natural way. Mm -hmm. For example, Luke Barnes, uh, the cosmologist I mentioned, who's from Australia, uh, he does. He's been doing research for years in various aspects of fine tuning. One of one of the findings he and a large number in his team have have found and published is that the cosmological constant seems to be more finely tuned than you would expect on multiverse theories. This was one of the few cases in the past where people sometimes claimed or, or thought that, well, maybe it looks almost like the cosmological constant would be just the kind of value you might expect if you had a large number of other universes and then you sliced away all the dead ones because as observers, we can only find ourselves in a life-winning universe. Um, but it turned out to, to be off from that prediction by at least a factor of, say, 50 or so. So it's there's things like that that I think would uh, weigh against the multiverse as an explanation of fine-tuning anyway. Yeah. So does this multiverse theory, uh, where does it arise from? Where did it uh, Where did it uh, first come from? Well, yeah, it didn't come just from people trying to say, let's try to explain away the fine-tuning. Yeah. But I think it did arise from people saying, this Big Bang looks a lot like a creation event. Yeah. There's got to be some naturalistic way to produce these kind of uh, origin of the universe events. And so a large number of theories have been posited for what could produce something looking somewhat like a Big Bang that might explain our universe or how it could have existed forever. And by the way, those theories don't do well at, at making the universe infinitely old anyway, but um, there, are, there are ways, I think they're not within the currently understood physics, but they're extensions to it. And as Luke Barnes has said, sometimes they are with one eye toward the fine tuning, like even though people were already starting to think along this lines, just to explain the origin of the universe, when the fine tuning came along, it did influence how they evaluate multiverses because now you've got to also explain fine tuning and you want to look at would a multiverse predict life permitting universes that would be similar to ours. Mm -hmm. So that, that enters into it. So they're trying to craft theories that could produce universes within those constraints, and I think still struggling somewhat to do so in any way that wouldn't itself require fine-tuning. Yeah. So you said that uh, these theories don't uh, do well at making the universe infinitely old. Could you expand upon that? Why um, it, it seems that uh, 
to avoid the conclusion that the universe has a spaceless, timeless, uh, immaterial cause, that you would have to somehow make something material or something physical uh, be eternal. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. So it is interesting, I think, that most cosmologists historically have been trying to find a theory that could make the universe eternally existent because they realize that there's some implications. The Big Bang itself was resisted for decades because of the seeming implications. This, you know, it just looked a lot like a creation event. Some people didn't want a universe like that. Um, so they, they started positing things like various oscillatory universe models, but those ran into problems with the second law of thermodynamics that you would seem to run out of usable energy. It couldn't have had an infinite number of these oscillations in the past, or it would have already reached um, sort of a heat death to the universe. Aaron Wall is a prominent cosmologist who has done, he's done some interesting, he has some interesting articles out there arguing for a generalized second law that applies to quantum mechanics as well. And so if the universe was infinitely old, we would have already run out of sort of usable energy, if, if you will, in layman's terms. Um, and there's really no way to escape that. But obviously our universe is anything but in that kind of equilibrium state where nothing interesting happens, which is in fact, you know, we were the, the fine tuning of the initial conditions is because it's such a special improbable state. And that's just remarkable that we started out in a state that allowed so much complexity to arise. So we, it doesn't look infinite from those standpoints. There's also something called the Bordeva-Lincoln-Guth theorem, which says that any universe which has on average expanded cannot have existed forever, at least in terms of the space-time. Um, some atheist cosmologists have really tried to push back on the implications of that. Lincoln himself seems to believe that um, that that result is pretty significant for almost all models. The only way to avoid the assumption ends up having other very significant issues, something called a-causal fine-tuning, for example, where there would be fine-tuning without any kind of um, possible possible explanation at all because there would be no cause to it. Yeah, so, so I was a watching a debate between Sean Carroll and William Lane Craig on this. I think it was a few years ago. I can't remember when it was. And, of course, Dr. Craig loves to quote the board guth Lincoln theorem on this. And John Carroll showed a clip of maybe it was Vilenkin, maybe it was, it was, guth. It yeah. was guth saying that's not true. What, what do you, I, I, I mean, I don't know the science behind all this stuff. I didn't study science as a professional, but what, what, what was he getting at there? Or You seem to be familiar with it. Yeah. Um, like I said, there's different perspectives on the significance of the BBG theorem. Um but with any theorem or something of that nature, it's always going to be based on an assumption. Now, Vilenkin argues, and I, I have his book, Many Worlds in One, and have read some of his articles and heard him speak many times. He, he does seem pretty convinced that it's a very significant finding that a plot, because it, he says it doesn't depend on uh, quantum gravity theory. Right. It's a very general result that he thinks holds. Um, but others like Sean Carroll and Guth, I think if you're an atheist and you see the, the uh, implications, it's really hard for you to not assume that there's going to be some kind of naturalistic way to avoid the implications. And since we don't have a quantum theory of gravity, some people think that maybe that could come to the rescue in that area. 
Um, but it, there are, I think the black hole companion to natural theology is a pretty good summary of that, where James Sinclair worked with uh, Dr. Craig to kind of document, a, a num you know, among the ways to avoid the problems or, or to avoid the eternal universe, what are the other problems you encounter? Okay. I would say that there's no final word from the, the physicists on the topic. And so we need to be careful as theists not to overstate that. But I think you can still craft a Kalam cosmological argument where it certainly seems more plausible than not that both, both of those premises are true. Okay. That the universe has a beginning and there's the philosophical arguments as well, some of which I think do work maybe not all the philosophical arguments sometimes offered work but i think some of them probably do yeah do you think an, an actual infinite is impossible or however that's worded i would my personally i would want to be more cautious in in my claims i would i wouldn't want my personally i i wouldn't want to claim that it's impossible for the actually infinite to exist in reality i mean i think craig is capturing you know the same kind of thought that Hilbert had, mm -hmm. where, you know, the great mathematician David Hilbert, he did seem really convinced that it was impossible in reality. Both those guys are smarter than me, but <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> I, I just want to be cautious. Like, I'm not fully convinced because, you know, you, you can understand the infinite and deal with it. And it seems weird if something is mathematically feasible for it to, net, you know, I think their arguments relate to things like just because it's mathematically feasible doesn't mean it's physically feasible in all cases. Sure. Uh, you start, for example, if you think in terms of what if we had an infinite number of particles and then you start having them decay according to the laws of physics. So some of those would go from one particle to another type, but according to, you know, Cantor's way of dealing with infinite math, I mean, you can show from set theory that there's a correspondence such that you have the same number of particles after half of them decay as you did yeah. before that. You have a countably infinite set. So there's some really counterintuitive things involved in the infinities. But I think some of the stronger arguments that seem more clear would be maybe like um, Alex Proust and Rob Coons have formulated some a more conservative claim would be that an actually infinite uh, temporal sequence yeah. of causes is impossible. Yeah, that that seems more so likely I, I to me. Focus, yeah, uh, I'd focus more on the narrow claim anyway. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Somebody objected to me one time trying talking about these countable infinite sets that you uh, mentioned. Can you explain what? Or if you're familiar, I guess. Do you know? Can, can you explain what that is? Sure. So there are different kinds of infinities. You shouldn't think of different infinite sets is necessarily being equivalent. But if you just think of like the the natural numbers, that's one form of an infinite set. You know, the integers, one, two, mm. three, all the way up with no limit. Um, but the interesting thing there is you could say, well, the odd integers form an infinite set yeah. as well. But you can, by association, you can say, well, um, you can draw one-to-one -one association between the well, let's say the even integer. So you just take every integer, you double it, and now you have a set of even integers. Well, that's the same size. You can draw, do a one-to-one -one associativity there, and you can show mathematically that they have the same cardinality within those sets. And yet, that rate that poses some weird things if you try to apply that to physical systems, because yeah, you would seem to have a different number. Yeah, I mean, when I hear this, and I'm not a professional or, or a technical on this 
subject. But when I hear this, I'm I'm like, okay, we can do strange stuff with numbers. But like you're saying, that doesn't uh, when you think about it in physical terms, in re- reality, realistic terms, like an actual number of physical events happening temporally like that. I, I don't see how that's even possible. I mean, I get the yeah. you you know the potential infinite. For example, the future is potentially infinite, I suppose, in that regard. Like, as long as everything keeps going the way it is, it's potentially infinite. But at any given moment in time, it's actually finite. Like, if we were to freeze, exactly. if we were to freeze time right now, there'd have to be a finite number of these events. It couldn't go eternally into the past. It seems to me, at least, that just doesn't make any sense. But I don't know. What about, what does Hayden know? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Uh, let's see. So sometimes you hear, and I don't know if this is a silly objection and serious atheists and, and physicists don't make this objection or not, but sometimes I hear, uh, you know, if I had a, a 52 card uh, uh, deck of cards in front of me and I picked four random cards, um, what, were, what are the odds that these four cards would come up in this exact order as they did? Not very good, I guess, if you people take the probability of these four cards in this exact order. That's not very good, but right. here they are. So I think this more has to do with probability theory, but I don't know. Maybe you could expand upon that. Yeah. Yeah. The, one of my early interactions, uh, this kind of thing was, was raised when we were sort of doing a friendly debate for at a high school um, for an IB class one time on this, and, and the... Uh, the teacher came up with this kind of objection to the fine tuning. And so the, the, the thing that you want to realize is that that objection itself, that any hand of cards is as likely as any other, it's making an assumption. It's assuming that the cards were dealt fairly. But, you know, if we're playing poker and I keep dealing myself four aces or royal flush every time, at some point you're going to know I'm cheating yeah. and it's going to be a justified inference. If that happens enough times, you're going to almost certainly know that it's true and you're right to infer some kind of interference because what you want to, the right question is, were they, were the cards dealt fairly? And so even though any hand is just as likely as any other, you want to, you want to look at your data relative to different theories. So yeah, any set of constants in the universe is just as likely as any other. But that's the question that we want to know. We want to know... Why do we keep getting the right constants to permit life? Were they set randomly yeah. is, the question, is the real question. And, and so were they rigged or were they... You know, it's just very similar to those the, the cards. Were the cards dealt fairly? In, in which case you have no reason to favor one over the other. Uh, but, oh, now we're seeing a trend. So on the hypothesis that they were rigged, it is evidence for that hypothesis, even though any set of cards dealt is just as likely as any other yeah so maybe it has to do with uh i'm just trying to conceptualize it for myself i'm sure you explained it perfectly fine for everybody else um that maybe it has something to do with yes these different constants are just as likely as the other ones to happen but it's the fact that we keep getting the constants that bring about the same effect namely life that kind of makes us go something's up is that right I think the way to think about it, and maybe I didn't explain it as well as possible, but you want to, you have this certain, you have the data about the cards or the laws of nature, the constants, um, but you're really trying to evaluate them with respect to one of two possible theories, either that they were 
set at random okay. or that they were rigged. Yes, and then but if we start with seeding, that one set is just as likely as the other. That sounds like random. I don't know. Yeah. See, you're you're assuming if you say that that any any set of cards or any set of cons is just likely as any other, that oh, okay. is true on the assumption. Oh, okay. And only the assumption that they that you're dealing fairly or that they're not rigged. Okay. But you're you're trying to answer the question: Were the laws of physics rigged? Were the cards rigged? And so there, certain data may support one hypothesis over the other. Sure. So, with respect to that theory. Mm-hmm. So how do we know then that uh, this was rigged and we aren't just? I mean, ah, I'm trying to think of a way to word it. Um, so that you can give a good answer, because I'm sure you have one. I just can't ask the question properly. It'd be nice <laughs> if I could do that. Um, but I guess the objection is something like, um, of course we beat the odds. We're here to observe ourselves beating the odds, I, or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, there is another factor to think about here, and that is that it's impossible for observers to find themselves living yeah. in a universe which doesn't support observers, and that's the so-called anthropic principle. Okay, the anthropic principle. Okay, yeah. Which, unfortunately, that's been used in so many different ways by different people. It's led to a lot of confusion. But the original form, the weak anthropic principle, was just a tautology, something true by definition, that was just stating what I just said, that uh, you can't expect what you find out about the universe to have been a random sample because it has certain restrictions based on the fact that it would have to support observers. Mm-hmm. So the thing about that, though... I think, well, a lot of people would point to the the famous analogy by John Leslie, the Canadian philosopher of the firing squad, where he said that, you know, picture yourself before a firing squad, many of these trained marksmen, ready, aim, shoot, boom, they all miss. You find yourself in this improbable situation. You could just say, well, if they didn't all miss, I wouldn't be here. So there's nothing unusual, nothing to worry about here. No, you probably wouldn't. You probably would think that it was rigged. They were firing blanks. They were ordered to miss. Something was up for these people to actually miss in you know this improbable situation. Mm-hmm. Now, if you knew for sure that there was an, you know a near infinite number of firing squads, eventually they would all miss. So then you want to look at things like, well, did the pattern of bullets look like they barely missed, like they were aiming, or were they like? Wait. trying to miss the purpose. You, yeah. you can start looking at things like that from within the data, Yeah, make some uh, deductions. That makes sense. That, make, that That's a good explanation. Uh, so where does this um, uh, argument, well, actually, first of all, it, we're, we're, we're working with the improbability of these things happening by uh, random uh, processes or something like that and inferring intelligence at, at some level. How is this not a God of the gaps argument? Well, I think, first of all, I think gaps, it's, it's sort of a pejorative thing that's sort of poisoning the well to call things God of the gaps. And sure. often people will refer back to, well, we used to believe that thunder was, you know, something coming from these gods and they're doing certain things. And now we know that it's the lightning causes the sound barrier to be broken and things like that. Well, I would say, first of all, that there's those kind of stories are way overused. And for example, it wasn't, it was largely like the Judeo Christian worldview that helped break a lot of those superstitions. Um, Even though sure within 
Jews and Christians, sometimes we've had some ourselves, we've been wrong about some things, people try to read too much in the Bible. But largely, if you look at the Bible, it tries to demythologize, you know, nature in very much in contradiction to the nations around it. At the time of the writings, it was talking about how, you know, these heavenly bodies are just created entities and you're not supposed to, there's verses against astrology in the Bible and things like that. And, um, but I think the other thing about gaps arguments is that any explanation, say the, the Higgs boson or, um, just anything where you're positing some new part, you know, the existence of an electron or something, you end up trying to fill a gap in knowledge by positing some entity that would explain it. Mm-hmm. It's just a fundamental nature of explaining things. Yeah. Now, the worry is that if, if you're arguing from ignorance, that is truly a fallacy. That's something to avoid. Um, but, I mean, in this case of fine-tuning, it wasn't as though Christians were like, well, we don't know how things work. We're going to say that there's this certain fine-tuning. No, it was non-believers that discovered the fine-tuning and said, hey, this is really weird. There seems to be these things rigged. They weren't really looking looking for it necessarily, trying to fill in some gap. It's just something that was discovered. So it's ba- it's an argument not based on ignorance, which, yes, we would want to avoid that, but it's based on knowledge about our best supported physical theories. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that there's no gap involved here at all. And in fact, often it, people try to appeal to unknown physics to fill that gap where, you know, if you just go by the physics, we know it's even more clear that the universe is finely tuned for life. People will try to posit new physics as a way of minimizing that and so forth, but I don't think they can never totally eliminate it. And so I just don't see that there's there's a gap. Now, in terms of, you know, is it is the gap best explained by God or not? I think because we're dealing with the most fundamental level of physics, it's really hard, for example, to think about, you know, when people talk about let's build some machine to go to Mars, you know, some spacecraft to go to Mars or other planets, you don't often hear them say, well, we'll just disable gravity for a little while and then we can get there. Or, you know, we'll turn off the laws of physics. We understand that, it would be very difficult for any non-divine per- being to manipulate the laws of physics at their most fundamental level. So it's a being that could come up, that could determine the mass of these particles, the relative force strength, things like that, it really, it does fit the dis- job description of God pretty well. It, it's really hard to envision any other kind of design being due to aliens or something of that nature. So it's, it's, it's a pretty logical inference to God, I think. Yeah, definitely. That, that I I've hadn't heard that explanation before about w- what kind of a being would even be able to control the laws of physics in the first place. Uh, it would have to be something I guess very powerful would be one way to think about it. Um, yeah. How do we know this uh, is a monotheistic god or anything of the Christian variety? And if we don't, then we don't. Maybe we have to use other arguments. But what all can we infer from this being that would have the ability to do this? Yeah, I think we want to be cautious not to go beyond the data. And I think we can tell there's design at this foundational level. And it seems to be something supernatural by definition. If you're controlling all of nature, it's got to be beyond nature. Uh, but beyond that, we you know, we couldn't say for sure if it was one God or maybe more than one God or the nature of that God. I think, yeah, you'd want to look at other lines of evidence to try to establish the nature of this being that finally tuned the universe 
And to me, that doesn't make it insignificant. Some atheists or skeptics like to say, well, that doesn't do anything towards your case. But, you it know, it moves me out of atheism. Look, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like it's huge if, you know, if, if you're a naturalist or an atheist and you really understand, I think, some of these arguments such as fine tuning, I just don't see how they can square that with our belief system. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't get you necessarily to Christianity, but then it should open you up to go and do that search and sure. evaluation. Yeah. Uh, okay, so is there any objections that we didn't hit that uh, you often hear from scientists or anything? Um, one common one that might be worth expressing that you hit, hit a lot at the popular level is like, well, the universe is so inhospitable to life. Why, you know, it doesn't look finely tuned when we can't live in other parts of the universe or we have this huge universe. Why is it so big? You know, some of those kinds of um, complaints might weigh in. But I, I think when you think about the fact that we, you know, we live on a pretty amazing Earth, none of us has the time to go visit all the incredible places on our planet as it is. Why, why is it so bad that um, we have to put on a spacesuit, you know, to go beyond our atmosphere and things like that? Um, I don't, I don't see the evidential force of that. I don't see that as a defeater. Yeah. for fine-tuning. It still looks rigged for life, even it's... if life can't exist elsewhere. In fact, when you understand how life-inhibiting much of the universe is, you under, you can better understand fine-tuning, because without yeah. fine-tuning, the whole universe would have been this, would have been like the uh, void of interstellar space, where there's just hardly any particles you know, that even touch each other that often. Yeah. Well, it would have been worse than interstellar space, uh, as Luke Barnes in his, his book which, by the way, was co-authored with with an atheist, Fortunate Universe being the, the recommended book yeah. on fine-tuning. Um, if the cosmological concept wasn't fine-tuned to at least one part in 10 to the 90th power, the whole universe could have been this just, it would have been so sparsely populated, things would have just expanded at this incredible rate. You hardly ever have particles even uh, bouncing off each other and it would have just been hydrogen in the universe, basically, among elements. Yeah. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I'm going to have to go back and watch everything, take it all in. But uh, uh, before we go, uh, again, if you're listening and uh, you want to watch the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Alan Hainline, you can follow the Patreon description below and become a supporter of the show at the dollar uh, uh, gifting level. You can get access to uh, live Q&A with me most Monday evenings. I won't say every Monday evening, but we do do a, a live Q&A over at the Patreon page if you become a supporter. Uh, at that level, at the, again, at the $5 level, you can get access to uh, the bonus segment, and not just the bonus segment with Alan Hainline, but all of our past and future bonus segments. You'll get access uh, immediately to those. Uh, but before we get to the bonus segment, Alan, uh, one last question for you is, what advice would you give to um, well, not necessarily a young person, but probably a young person who um, is interested in the STEM fields or something like that, uh, and they do have uh, a Christian faith, but they kind of are, you know, they they hear from the culture or, or from whoever that there's this conflict between science and their faith. What kind of advice would you give them? Well, I would recommend that they, they you know, study some of this evidence, get, get a book like Fortunate Universe, where it talks about the physics of fine tuning. And then it, try, it looks at some of the objections and both the atheist and the theist author agree that most of those objections fall flat. 
And then in the end, you see the case for God as being the best explanation and the case for the multiverse. And so you see in dialogue the, the main two alternatives among physicists for how to best explain the evidence. And so I think if you expose yourself to the evidence and see how multifaceted it is that we have evidence for God from the origin of the universe, life, consciousness, the existence of free will, the fine-tuning, then you can realize that uh, we have a, a, a lot of evidence out there. And then I think you should also familiarize yourself with non-scientific evidence, evidence from fulfilled prophecy, um, even religious experience shouldn't be something, that's something evidential as well that's we shouldn't be ashamed to admit there's a lot of changed lives out there. And um, what's the best explanation of that? Well, I think the, the fact that it's true would be the best explanation. So I think you do want to be firmly grounded because you probably will have your faith attacked and, and just do excellence within your field and don't be obnoxious, you know, hold to your beliefs, talk to people in a respectful way, dialogue, but, uh, you want to be, I think, firmly grounded in across many lines of evidence so that and, you know, maybe you'll find out that what you were taught in your Sunday school class is just it's not right or something. And that's OK. You know, people sometimes read too much into the Bible in terms of it claiming certain scientific things. It's not a scientific textbook. And it's OK if your views can change a little bit here and there. But you should look at the broad base of evidence and, and realize there's no reason Certainly no reason from science or anything else I've encountered to um, question the existence of God or the truth of Christianity. Fully endorsed. That sounds like great advice. And again, to the audience, you can pick up uh, the book, The Story of the Cosmos, uh, to which uh, Alan Hainline contributed to in a, in a, a chapter with uh, cosmologist Luke Barnes on the fine-tuning of the universe. And I'll be getting a copy of that myself. And then I may go get Luke Barnes' other book and see if we can't get him on here. That might be fun. But, uh, Alan, thanks so much for agreeing to do this. I do appreciate you taking the time out of your evening to come on. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Hayden. I really enjoyed it. Hey, guys, thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, leave us a review. And, of course, if you want to watch the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Alan Hainline, be sure to follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a supporter. Thanks so much, guys, and we'll see you next time.